everyone. How are you? Whoa, someone's doing great. Glad to hear it. Uh, my name is Lane, and I've recently experienced the joy of being installed as the lead pastor here at Red Hills Church. I've been gone for a few weeks because uh, my wife recently gave birth to our new daughter. Uh, yeah. So... Dude, I know I'm biased, but man, those are cute kids. They're so cute. Um, that's my son, William. He's five, and that's Brooklyn Jean. Uh, she was born on August 9th. Uh, she weighed seven pounds, 10 ounces. She is healthy and thriving, and mom is recovering well. We are all, uh, William included, completely in love with this little girl. Um, we are also so incredibly tired. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to say thank you to this community for uh, giving your pastor the space to take some time off to be with his family. I know the timing of that was kind of weird. You know, a few weeks ago I came in like, hey, I'm the new lead pastor, I'll see you in a month. It was a little <laughs> jarring. Um, but honestly, I think you're gonna have a healthier pastor, uh, a healthier human being up here because of that. So I appreciate you giving me the space to be with my family. My wife also thanks you. <laughs> um, but we're so tired. It's been almost six years since we've had a newborn and we got used to, you know, like sleeping and stuff. And <laughs> we're doing much less of that these days. I wanna tell you a story that has nothing to do with anything. I just think it's funny um, because this is how tired we are. But newborn babies, they find it soothing when they're trying to sleep and you can't get them to go to sleep. They find it soothing if you kind of like pat their butt. I don't know why, they just, they like that. So I've been getting used to that. I'm cradling the baby, I pat her butt, I'm kind of doing one of these motions, right? I've gotten so used to doing this that I find myself doing it even when I'm not holding the baby. I'm just kind of <laughs> swaying and like, oh, I'm not holding, I'm not holding her. Um, so it kind of becomes second nature, right? Well. Brooklyn uh, a week ago was cluster feeding, which means she was eating like every 90 minutes. So we basically just like weren't sleeping. Uh, and around 3 or 4 a.m., I was basically a zombie at that point, right? And I wake, I'm in a dead sleep, and I wake up to my wife really irritated saying, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm asleep. I have no idea what, what's happening. And I look down, and I'm just like patting her butt. <laughs> and she's like lying there asleep. <laughs> Apparently, she woke up and said, Lane, I'm cold. And I rolled over and went, it's okay, baby. And I just started patting her back. <laughs> Whatever. So, all that to say, that's how tired I am. I'm exhausted. But I am thrilled to be back here with all of you. I'm excited to jump into fall as we continue to contend for the kingdom of heaven to come in Newburgh. Um, I understand that our Fox students are back in full swing. Welcome home. Uh, how many of you are George Fox students right now? There's a lot of you. Holy cow. Um, well, for those of you who called Red Hills home, when you guys left, there was a different dude up here calling himself the lead pastor. And know that I think Pastor Aaron is awesome. And in no way would I ever hope to replace who he is. Um, he, he was amazing. I just want to say selfishly, though, like I love college students so much. My last job was to be the young adults pastor at uh, the last church I was at in Beaverton. And there's something so special and exciting about this season of your lives. And it was some of the most impactful years of my life. And I look forward to walking with alongside you uh, as much as you'll have me. Um, I'm getting to know people at Fox. Actually, someone who just got hired at Fox is one of the university pastors, Cindy Murillo. She's a good friend of mine, and she's one of our neighbors, so get to know her. She's great. Um, I'm getting to know 
uh, Rusty St. Cyr, I'm getting to know Jamie Johnson. Um, you guys have really cool people that are serving you at Fox. And so uh, I know we have some professors and people that attend our church. Jaina and I are so excited to be a part of a university that has a football team. So excited to go to games and to go to like musicals and to, to see your guys' plays and stuff, concerts, all of that. We're, we're jazzed to be a part of, we're jazzed? What am I? <laughs> I, I sorry. Uh, we're, <laughs> I'm, I'm a dad now of two, so my dad jokes are just, they're going to be coming fast. Um, but we're really, really excited to be here with you and for you. Before we jump into the message today, I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that are happening in the life of our church and give you a couple of announcements. Firstly, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward as we receive our tithes and offerings. Um, giving out of our finances, this is something that we do as a joyful act of worship, right? This is just for those who call this church home, by the way. So if you're new, if you're visiting, please feel no pressure to give whatsoever. Our hope is that our giving of our finances is something that we do full of joy, and it's a part of our, like, acts of worship, right? So we want to include it in our Sunday rhythms. I know that for me and my wife, we give online, and so it's always a helpful reminder when I see the bucket, like, oh yeah, I got to go online and do that. I remember at my last church, when the buckets would get passed, it was a reminder, I'd take out my phone right there, and I would give. We appreciate it. It allows Red Hills to continue to serve our community and to resource people, and it allows us to worship God um, in every aspect of our lives, including our finances. So we're going to ask the ushers to pass the, the buckets, and I'm going to give you a couple more announcements. Another one is that uh, groups, sign up for groups is opening today. Gathering on Sundays is great, but there's only so far we can go with each other in between services and after services and things like this. We want to encourage you to get plugged into a place where you can find meaningful relationships and go deeper with people. Uh, so groups start in October and they last for six weeks. You can sign up for a group in the lobby uh, after the service. Also, Next Steps is happening after the gatherings today. Uh, if you've decided to get more involved at Red Hills, Next Steps is a little course that we have uh, uh, that allows you to get connected with some of our staff and allows you to discover um, kind of how you can get plugged in to our church, learn about the heart of our church a little bit. This will be taking place in the fireside room right after the service. And last announcement, I would encourage you that if you are new, if you're checking out Red Hills for the first time, please fill out one of the connect cards that's in the seat backs in front of you. And if you're in the front row, just ask the person behind you to hand it to you. Um, but but uh, this is a way for us to kind of connect with you and follow up with you. So if you could fill that out, we'd really appreciate it. And if you bring that to the tent after the service, apparently there's a gift that you get as a way of saying welcome to the church. All right, that's all the announcements. Any questions? Great. Uh, if you did, I probably wouldn't answer it anyway. Uh, we're going to jump into the message today. I asked Ashley to share Psalm 23 during our worship this morning because I had this moment this week in the midst of all my exhaustion and my weakness. As a human being, I was feeling just so insufficient to this task. I was feeling completely out of gas to jump into this week and to jump into fall. It's, you know, the launch of our first, of our three services for the first time. Fall's getting kicked off. Our Fox students are here. And I wanted to be here, and I wanted to be fully present, but I'm just so tired, and I'm feeling insufficient to the task. And this is usually when pastors are, like, doing their vision series, right? It's like, oh, here comes fall. Here's what we're all about. Here's what we're doing. And I had these moments this week where I'm like, what am I doing? Like, we're in the middle of a book series at the start of fall. Who does that, right? I'm having all these very human moments, Okay. Five years ago, when I stepped into my first pastoral role as the young adults pastor in Beaverton, I went on a prayer retreat 
in the hopes of kind of receiving like a big revelation from God about the ministry for the young adults, right? Like I wanted a big word. I wanted the clouds to part and I wanted God to speak, right? So I set aside an entire day and I brought my Bible and I brought like 12 journals and I was just like ready. I was ready to hear from God, right? Well, the whole day I prayed, I read, I journaled, and I just got nothing. Like radio silence. I went to a retreat center there was all this beautiful nature and artwork and things meant to inspire you to the goodness of God and just nothing. So I went to a different prayer chapel and I saw all these beautiful stained glass windows and I played the piano a bit and tried to worship and I just, nothing. So then I was like, okay, I'll go to Case Study Coffee in, in the Hollywood District in Portland because, you know, maybe Jesus wants me to be like in the world but not of it, you know? Like, so I was like, okay, I'll go, I'll go to a coffee shop. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I mean, come on, God, I set aside a whole day for you. Do you not appreciate how I rearranged my schedule to fit you in, right, to hear from you? So I thought, okay, well, if the heavens aren't going to open up, if I'm not going to get some divine revelation, I'm just going to read my Bible and have a time of devotional moment, and maybe that'll be sufficient for the day. So I went back to basics, right? I opened up my Bible to Psalm 23. And as I read about the green pastures and the quiet streams, this picture came to my mind that was so vivid that to this day I still can't get it out of my mind. Um, I saw this image of a pastor, and he was in front, he was in a church, he was in front of all these sheep in the pews, and he had a blender up on the stage with him. He was grinding up grass, and he was taking this big spoon, and he was taking the grass, and he was just shoving it into the mouths of the sheep. And I can only, what I can only describe is like the gentle voice of God's spirit. I felt him ask me, like, is that how you feed sheep? And in my heart, I responded, well, no, of course not. And then I saw the uh, image of Psalm 23. I saw the image of the open pasture, quiet waters, the gentle grass. And in that moment, I knew that there was always going to be this temptation for me to want to be that first guy, to want to force people to receive God's truth on my terms, to control how that happens. But that is not the role of the pastor. The role of the pastor, the role of the under-shepherd is to create space for people to come and to be with God. I share that with you because I want to be honest with you. People ask me often, like, what vision do you have for Red Hills? Don't get me wrong. I have lots of thoughts. I have lots of opinions, lots of conversations and directions and all kinds of dreams that are stirring right now. But in a lot of ways, I really don't know what the vision is yet. And it's because I want to take time to get to know you. I want to take time to get to know this community and to seek God's heart for what he wants for us, right? What I do know is this. Whatever the vision that me and the staff, whatever we implement here at Red Hills Church, whenever we are together, the goal will always be to create space for people to encounter the love and the truth of God and to make room for everyone to take part in that. That's what we do together. So I figured in the opening weeks of our relationship, not really knowing where to go, we might as well go to the scriptures because you can't go wrong with God's word. And especially in James, this is a book of wisdom found in Jesus. So it's a good place to start. Amen. So that's where we're at. That's why we're in the middle of a book series in the launch of fall, because this is where we are. And I'm actually okay with it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that what we do here and the lives that we lead following you are so much bigger than just the words of a pastor or a song that we sing, a building that we gather in. 
I thank you that we are taking part in a story that is so much more radically, unimaginably powerful than we could possibly imagine. That you are creating in us a new reality where death is put to rest, where new life is brought forth and everything is made new. I pray that we would be attentive to your voice and your spirit as we endeavor to partner with you in this good work. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've been in a book series in James called Wisdom Lived Out. Wisdom Lived Out. I don't know about you, but I've been really hungry for wisdom in my life. Thank you to Brett and to Kate and to Sunshine for uh, teaching in a wonderful uh, 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 sermons while I've been away. Um, since there are so many new faces in the room, I thought that I'd do a little bit of review covering kind of where we've been in the series leading up to today's text. So for a little bit of context, James is uh, most likely written by James the Just, who is one of the half-brothers of Jesus. He's the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem, and he's revered as one of the great sages of the faith at the time. And he didn't come to believe that his brother was the Messiah until after his death and resurrection, which I think is really fascinating. And he's writing this letter to the 12 tribes scattered around the nations, which is, yes, the Jewish people, but is also now opened up to a broader family of anyone who calls Jesus Lord. And it's structured in a very unique way. It kind of blends a few different formats. There's the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and the Proverbs. There's the teachings of Jesus. We see so many echoes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it has the form of a letter, an open letter that we see uh, uh, stylized in a lot of the New Testament. And James is writing this work in order that Christians all over can have access to wisdom that comes from Jesus, and that this wisdom would be transformative in people's lives. So we live in an age of information, yes? Which also means that we live in an age of misinformation, right? Lots of information, lots of opinions everywhere. You can find anything about anything anywhere. And it's been suggested by some studies that Generation Z potentially has the highest IQ of any generation that has come before it, which is fascinating. We have access to more information and knowledge than anyone else in human history. Now, before you let that puff you up, listen to this. <laughs> Intelligence and knowledge are not always helpful if they are not accompanied by wisdom, right? Information and intelligence is only helpful when you know how to use it. Otherwise, intelligence and knowledge can actually breed anxiety and confusion. I use the illustration of WebMD, right? Like when you go online and you like look up a symptom, what started out as a tummy ache is now like a life-altering disease that you have, right? It's because there's all this information on all the things that this could be, but if you want wisdom, you go to a doctor who knows what to do with all the information out there to more correctly diagnose and heal you, right? And more than just anxiety and confusion, intelligence can create a dynamic of power. Because if you're the smartest person in the room, it gives you power. But power without humility, without love, without wisdom, it's dangerous, right? So in our day, receiving wisdom is far less common than it is for us to learn something, to gain information. And James is a good book for discovering wisdom. How many of you have ever met somebody who was really intelligent, but not very wise? <laughs> Or likewise, somebody who was not maybe very educated and very learned, but very wise in the way that they lived their life. This is what Jesus offers us, a way to wisdom. 
And James is teaching us that the pathway to finding this wisdom is to submit oneself to the lordship of Jesus. That's the only way to do it. He defines himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this word servant is one that pops up all throughout the New Testament, especially in letters. It's the word doulos. The Greek word doulos implies servitude on the level of slavery. But what's interesting is that when we make ourselves doulos to Christ, we find that Christ, in turn, makes himself a doulos to us. Paul teaches us in Philippians that although he was equal to God, he did not take his equality as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself, taking on the very nature of a servant. So we make ourselves a servant to someone who is characterized by his servant nature. Right? We lose our lives for ourselves in order to find them truly in him. In John 15, Jesus invites his disciples and he says that I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friends. And he invites us into partnership with him. So James encourages the reader to ask for wisdom because God gives generously to anyone who asks for wisdom. But then he gives this caveat and he writes that when we ask, when we ask, excuse me, that we should believe and not doubt because one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind and that that person should not expect to receive anything from God. And that's tough, right? To hear that like you should not doubt. That's a tough thing to hear. And with this idea, I actually wanted to go to bat for the young people in the room. Not just the young people. Young people are not the only ones that experience doubt, but especially the young people. In your early years, we experience more doubt than we do the rest of our lives. But doubt when we hear that, we hear that we shouldn't doubt. If you grew up in the church like me, doubt was kind of treated like a curse word, right? Doubt was like the enemy of faith. It was the nemesis of faith. And those who have a tendency towards religiosity, like me, we kind of get really threatened when we hear terms like doubt or deconstruction. But what's interesting is that this idea of doubting, the word for doubt here in the Greek is dipsychus which is not actually talking about questioning one's beliefs. It's not actually talking about a cognitive dissonance, which is a term that's become very popular in deconstruction circles, right? That's not actually what da the doubt that James is talking about. Dipsychus is most accurately translated to a division of loyalties. Interesting. So when he says we should ask and we should believe and not doubt, he's not saying that we shouldn't question our beliefs or traditions ever. What he's actually saying is that if you want to benefit from the wisdom of Jesus, you need to devote yourself fully to him. You can't serve two masters. If you want to walk in the way of Jesus, it's something that you can't half-heartedly commit to. You have to jump in with both feet and trust his process, right? So young people in the room, college students in the room, know that if you have doubts, if you have questions, that is actually okay. In fact, I would say it's more it's okay. I would argue that it's necessary. I would even go as far as to say that deconstruction is an essential aspect of a healthy faith. I heard a pastor once say that Jesus invented deconstruction. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, think about it, he repeats this one phrase over and over again, you have heard it said, but truly I tell you. He looks at the culture and how they misconstrue the wisdom of the biblical teachings and he says, this is the heart of God. Questioning one's beliefs and practices is actually a healthy and necessary part of being mature. And if you think about it, faith implies doubt. Because I wouldn't need faith if I didn't have doubts, right? 
It implies that although I might not see the full picture, although it doesn't make sense to me that I should live my life this way, I still put my trust in Jesus anyway. So a phrase that has been said a few times during this series is this, faith is not the absence of doubt, but rather the audacity of trust. Faith is not the absence of doubt, it is the audacity of trust. So when we ask Jesus for wisdom, it's okay to have questions. But if we want to receive his wisdom, we have to be willing to trust in his teachings even when they don't seem to make sense. And that's the hard part. That's when our wisdom has to supersede our intelligence, right? And this is pretty important because receiving wisdom from Jesus does also not mean that we have access to easy lives. That's not what wisdom does. It's not a five-step program to the life you've always wanted, right? A.J. Sabota used to say that following Jesus will absolutely ruin your life. And what he meant by this, obviously, is that Jesus will uproot your expectations for what you think is a good life and replace them with his. And that can be uncomfortable. It can upset a lot of what you think is good and right to do. James writes that we will face trials and hardships of many kinds. The fact is, wisdom in Jesus is often characterized by suffering. Even Jesus himself, when he's glorified to the cross, or when he's glorified, it's, it's glorification to the cross. It's his sacrifice. And James tells us that when we face these trials, when we face these things, that God can use these seasons to, of, of hardship to develop in us endurance and maturity. My family has been so thrilled to welcome our daughter into the world. But Jay and I endured some very difficult times before we got to meet her. We experienced three miscarriages in the span of nine months. And that was a level of suffering that I had not yet in my life experienced. Jay and I learned how to grieve together, how to mourn together, how to lament together. And I'll be honest with you, after the first miscarriage, I remember I was in my car by myself, and I was just praying to God. And I remember I told him, I said, if, if we lose another one, like if you let this happen again, I don't know where you and I are going to be after that. I don't know where you and I are going to stand. And with each loss, I was surprised when I found myself leaning further into Jesus, wanting to trust in him more than I did the day before. And listen, although if I could go back and change what happened, I absolutely would, I also know that we have grown in ways that we couldn't have apart from that suffering. Somehow both of those things are true, right? And from that, I learned this. We don't always get to know why horrible things happen. We just don't. What I do know is that God wastes nothing. He wastes none of it. He uses every circumstance, every disappointment, every tragedy as a way to teach us, to, to train us in endurance, to make us mature. So James is teaching his readers to find wisdom so that he can equip God's people with a way to have a life that is integrated and congruent so that when they endure difficult times, they can be brought to maturity, that they can endure all things. 
So he's just hitting the readers with these one-two punches of, of memorable phrases, right? This is how it kind of mimics the Proverbs. These things are meant to be easily recalled, right? They characterize the Jesus follower. He says things like, be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. He says, do not show favoritism. We hear the phrase, faith without works is dead. These very simple but profound phrases that he just beats the reader up with, right? And rather than each lesson being completely independent on their own, he structures this letter like a poem. And these ideas and these truths, they rhyme with one another all throughout the passage. Which is why um, I wanted to review today, to kind of overview all the kind of principles that James had been giving us. And now we're going to jump into today's text, which is going to be James chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 1. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Cool. <laughs> it's so intense. Um, all kinds of animals, birds, and reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Okay, so he kind of breaks down the, the tongue, our speech, our words, into three points. He talks about the power of the tongue, the impact of our words. He talks about the nature of the tongue, the fact that it is untamable. And he talks about the revelation of the tongue, that the tongue reveals something true about us. So James first addresses the teachers of this Christian community. Teachers were a big deal in this first century. There was a lot of, of respect and status that came with being a rabbi, right? And we know that there were teachers in the first century who found themselves in this role of being a teacher in the Christian faith for the wrong reasons. That they were seeking platform, not really kingdom, right? So James is urging those who have a talent for teaching to seek first the kingdom of Christ and not the accolade of his followers. There's a difference there. And we might look at that and think that James is talking about people uh, like me. Like, oh, that, that, that passage is for teachers like Lane. But here's the deal. We live in an age where you don't need to be a teacher to have a platform, right? In most of our pockets at this very moment, we carry with us the ability to access our own personalized brands and platforms. On social media, we have a platform where we get to speak, have an audience, and practice one-way communication, and then get feedback and, and acclaim from that audience. In fact, did you know that one in six people in the U.S. under the age of 40 has a podcast? 
No, that's not true. But I thought it sounded right. <laughs> that was just for me. Okay. But honestly, though, we all want an audience. <laughs> Perhaps there are those of us who have the desire to have that audience, but not very, are not very conscious of how our words are impacting the world around us, of how the things that we choose to say are important, right? In Genesis... It is the word of God which manifests the mysteries of this vast universe. Everything that James Webb has captured in Genesis is created by God's words. That is powerful. And if we are bearers of God's image, would it not follow that our words also carry great power? What would happen if before we spoke, before we posted, before we reacted, that we considered this? that we remembered what our words could do. James gives all these analogies for the tongue, which would suggest that the tongue is small in comparison to the rest of your body, but it also has a huge impact on the way that you live your life. So he's not talking simply to teachers here. He's using teachers as an illustration to demonstrate how a person's words have a profound impact on human beings. And teachers have this ability to do one-way communication, right? Where they have to consider the questions and, the in- and anticipate the hesitations from their audience or field them. But we live in a reality where we all have access to one-way communication. And we like to put our opinion out into the world without really having a dialogue about it, right? I feel like this aspect of our culture got dialed up to 11 about eight years ago. In 2016, there was a pretty controversial election. And I cannot, I mean, when I look back on the amount of vitriol and anger that just flooded the internet at that time, it's been cranked up. Our culture's gotten really good at expressing opinion, but not having dialogue, right? A.J. Sabota, he wrote a book called Redeeming How We Talk. And in it, he said, instead of talking with, we talk over or about. And though God is always building unity among his children, we seem to be increasingly working against him. So there's a reason why James urges us earlier in the letter that those who follow Jesus should be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because our words are indicative of our thoughts, right? So we should be mindful of what we find ourselves saying because it can reveal to us something that we're thinking. (laughs) Paul challenges us to be renewed in our thinking, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? We tend to speak things, and then we tend to manifest those things. And that's sobering because our tongues, if they are indicative of our thoughts and our thinking, my thoughts can be really immature. (laughs) I can think some really immature things And my speech can manifest those things. For example, think about your self-talk, right? When you see yourself in the mirror, the things that you speak over yourself. If I continually say things like, man, you're uglier, you're worthless, you're lazier, you're a failure. I have the ability as a human being to speak those things into existence in my life and to believe them, right? The choices we make with our words, our talk, it's important. And James is teaching us that we get to pull from one or two places, right? With one, with one phrase, we, we praise our God, or with the other, we, we curse our brother. We talked about this at the, at the beginning of the series, but there's this, this Hebrew understanding of wisdom, where they understand that human beings have a desire for good and a desire for evil that are in conflict with, with one another. It's called the Yetzer Hatab and the Yetzer Harar. Both are there. We are a new creation in Christ, but we are not fully yet who we are becoming, Right? I don't know about you, but I don't have my new body yet. I don't have my resurrected self yet. But I do know that Jesus is calling me into this promised future with the way I live my life today. 
and I get to express that reality, or I can choose not to. I can choose to live into the person he's calling me to be or to act like who I used to be. I have this option. When we speak evil, when we curse, when we slander, we steer the ship like that rudder, little by little, into a place that is disastrous. And equally, if I speak life, if I speak blessing, if I speak gratitude, I steer myself closer and closer to the journey that Christ has for me. So one, the tongue has great power in our lives, great influence. Two, the tongue is impossible to tame. That's the nature of the tongue. And that is so frustrating. James is so frustrating. (laughs) Because earlier in chapter one, he says, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Okay, so he's telling us to control our tongue. And then later he tells us that, guess what? You can't control your tongue. Come on, man. (laughs) Is he contradicting himself here? Let's unpack the dynamics a little bit because I don't think he is. He uses the analogy of freshwater or saltwater, springs, right, of fruit trees, figs, or grapes, right? There is content, and then there is the source. The content is always going to reflect the source. I cannot separate the two. From the mouth flows what is in my heart. That is just the reality, which is the third point of this teaching, which is the tongue is revelatory. Our words reveal something that is in us. I had a mentor who used to say that if you need a full night of sleep and a full belly to be a nice person, then maybe you're not really a nice person. (laughs) Lately, my guard has been down, right? I'm sleep deprived, I'm irritable, I'm stressed. So my temper is short and my patience is thin. And I had a sobering moment while I was putting my five-year-old to sleep Um, I have this ritual of kind of asking him a few times a week uh, two questions. What made you happy today? And what made you sad today? And when I asked him what made made him sad today, uh, he told me, Daddy, you have to be nice to me. (laughs) Knife in my heart, right? I've been short with him lately. I snap a little more easily. And the reality is that my lack of sleep has not turned me into a bad person. My lack of sleep has revealed the ugly truth that maybe I'm not as patient as I think I am. Maybe I'm not as kind as I think I am. So there's something in me that cannot be changed through white-knuckle effort. And that's what I think James is talking about when he says the tongue cannot be tamed. You cannot help being who you are, which is why we require that the inner life be transformed so that what flows from it can be good. If I try to work the other way around, I will fail every time. If I find that a branch is producing figs and what we need is grapes, then I guess I have to be in a different vine, don't I? I have to find myself in a vine, abiding in a vine which produces grapes. I cannot expect to produce grapes while I'm on a fig tree. And when James challenges us to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, he gives us some practical advice of spiritual discipline, right? He gives us a method by which we can discern which spring we're drawing from. You see what he's saying? Have any of you had that moment where you wanted to react? You wanted to say something that was hurtful, that you kind of meant, and you really wanted to say it, but then you stopped for a second, and you realized, although I want to say this, and although I think I'm right, and I kind of mean it, it is, however, not indicative of who I want to be. You ever had those moments? This is what James is talking about. Stop. 
Look at what's coming out of you right now. Is it salt water? If it is, make sure that you're rooted in the stream of living water. Make sure that you're connected to the vine, that good is coming forth from you. Because you're powerless to do that yourself. You have to have that come from something beyond you. So James, he talks about this a lot. He talks about how something on the outside is indicative of something that is on the inside. One of the most famous ways he says this is he says, faith without works is dead, right? When I was a kid, that used to freak me out because I used to think, well, if faith without works is dead, does that mean like if I look at my life and I'm not doing enough for God that I'm not really a Christian, right? It used to stress me out. But we have to remember, to say something is dead in an era of post-resurrection is actually not as big a deal. Because Jesus creates a reality where things that are dead can be made alive again. Where things that are broken can be healed. So when we look at our lives and we say, I think my faith is dead. You know, Jesus, when he raises that girl from the dead, he says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. It's just a part of you that needs to be changed. It's a part of you that needs to be redeemed. And in Jesus, guess what? It's possible. It can be done. We're going to go to communion together because this inner transformation that we're talking about, it's something that's beyond us, right? It's something that's given to us. It's a gift. And it's something that we have to receive. Something that we started doing when I came on board is we started taking communion every week, which I know is a change up. And I know that with something that you do all the time, there is the potential that something becomes mundane, that it becomes ritualistic, and it loses its meaning. And we should never find ourselves in a place with this sacrament where we feel that way. Recognizing and remembering and taking part in the blood and body of Christ, this is something that is reserved for those who call Jesus Lord. And if you're in the room and you're not in a place where you feel like you can say that with integrity, I want you to know that's okay. And we're really glad that you're here. Instead of taking it with us this morning, I want you to hold it in your hands. I want you to reflect on it and consider this, that Jesus did everything that he did, that he went to the, the, the extreme lengths of dying and suffering and being ridiculed and humiliated so that he could experience the curse of sin and then defeat it by canceling its penalty, by raising up to life again. And then he invites us into that life. And he says, you're going to do this in remembrance of me. That you're going to remember my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. That from this day forward, you are a part of a new creation. That I am transforming you. When you take me into yourself, that I transform you from the inside out. This is the gift of Christ's crucifixion. So I want you to take a moment to open up your elements Maybe hold the bread in your hand. And I just want you to consider what the Spirit is speaking to you today. Just take some moments to reflect, and then we'll take it together. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us a choice. 
that you offer to us the divine love of your sacrifice and that when we receive it, we have the ability to live into the new creation, to choose to set aside the former things and to step into the new life that you've given to us. I pray that this morning as we receive your word and your wisdom, that we would not be inspired to work harder, to be better, but that we'd be inspired to know you more. And that in the knowing, we would be changed to look more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it and gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.